Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey, y'all. Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com.
With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. He said that they put you in the room and we're going to get rid of you. So they figured you'd mess up in the engine room. The plus I had going my favor is I was a perfectionist and I wanted everything perfect. Well, we got this engine. I wouldn't give you two hundred dollars for it. End up started thirty second. I wouldn't unload the pit equipment. Went down and got that race car. We so we bring it up and we cut the door bars out of it. We didn't ask permission at all. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past. That's the day we don't have any future. Hi, I'm Steve Wade. And I am Rick Houston. And Steve, when this episode drops on Wednesday night, Uh (laughs) I plan to be at a Boston Red Sox game with my son at Fenway Park. And it is going to be a miracle if we make it there alive. (laughs) (laughs) Because the Houstons are going to Boston. (laughs) Good night. And we're driving to Boston. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That's 800 miles. Yeah. Uh, I have these memories of going to the Bush Series Banquet in Florida with Jeannie and the boys and my mother-in-law. I knew I was in trouble (laughs) when we stopped three times before we got to Charlotte. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. So if we make it to Boston, man, I'm liable to set all three of them out on the side of the road. I want to warn the fans in Fenway. I want to warn the fans in Fenway. I know exactly what you're going to say. I know exactly what you're going to say. If you're sitting anywhere near Rick Houston and a foul ball comes your way, (laughs) run for your life. Man, some things just live in infamy. Go ahead and tell your version of the okay, events it that was transpired. Okay, we're it was watching in Anaheim. Angels yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. And you had joined a couple of us guys to see that game. And it turned out we were sitting uh, on the right-hand side of the stadium, as I recall. We were down the first baseline. And it, yeah. was, it, it was not very crowded at all. But all of a sudden, a foul ball comes skyrocketing our way. And you pick up and start running after that ball. <laughs> and I don't know what you did when you ran over this kid. <laughs> But all I could see was his two legs sticking up in the air behind these grandstand seats. And this you, kid gets younger and younger every time oh, you tell this knocked story. knocked him on his butt. <laughs> He's young. He was resilient. He'll get over it. <laughs> now, in all fairness, each Major League Baseball stadium has a game-used store to where you can just go and buy a ball that was used in that game. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. So maybe the kids of Boston are safe now. <laughs> let's hope so now how are we going to follow that up (laughs) steve this week we have the first part of the interview that you and i did with waddell wilson waddell was recently elected to the nascar hall of fame and i think in this interview our listeners are going to begin to understand why that was because when you sit across from somebody and talk to them about them serving on the crew 
of Fireball Roberts right? Yeah. and Fred Lorenzen and building engines for Mario Andretti's Daytona 500 win. And working for the legendary Holman Moody. We knew Waddell as a crew chief for drivers like Jeff Bodine, Buddy Baker, you know, Ricky Rudd and that kind of thing. But then when you think about his journey, that's one of the things I love about this podcast because you do learn about people's story. Sure. Started out as an engine builder. Yes. And to this day, if he remained an engine builder, he still would be in the Hall of Fame. Seven cars using Waddell Wilson engines have won the Daytona 500. That's seven victories for Waddell in engines alone. You got you to gotta think that had he not become a crew chief, as I said, I think he would be under very strong consideration as an engine builder. But it was more than that. And the thing that I loved about the conversation is the fact that just how close all this came to not happening because it was almost by accident. Right, right. That it, it took a place. Chance meeting that changed yeah. everything. Yeah, chance meeting that changed everything. And also in our second segment, we're going to talk about the September fifth, nineteen ninety one issue of Winston Cup scene. Harry Gant wins at Darlington. Right. Which we've been talking about a little bit in the yeah, past couple of absolutely. weeks. Absolutely. There's the whole backstory to that. There's so much news that was in that issue about that race. And also <laughs> there's a couple of features. And news items in this issue, Bunky Knutson. One of the great names in racing. (laughs) There's a Bunky Knutson feature in this issue. And also, one of the most chilling news items I guess I ever saw in this issue, Deb Williams wrote it, about a helicopter crash that Felix Sabatis was in. Remarkable that he's alive. Yes, it's very remarkable that he's alive. So stay tuned for that segment. And Steve, on Patreon, $5 a month will get you one classic issue of Winston Cup scene. $10 a month will get you two classic issues. And Steve, anybody who does $5 a month or more on Patreon will receive one of these commemorative issues of Grand National Scene that Darlington is doing for their throwback weekend. Hey, and Something to have because that's going to be a limited edition. And I don't know how much sweeter I can make that pot. <laughs> <laughs> so, patreon.com slash the Scene Vault Podcast. If you'd rather just do a one-time show of support, paypal.me slash the Scene Vault Podcast. Waddell, take it away. Waddell, welcome, and I just want to ask you to start. You are born and raised from Burnsville, North Carolina. No? Bakersfield. Bakersfield. They said Burnsville. That was Tom Higgins. <laughs> <laughs> but that, okay, but still up there in the mountains of North Carolina. Very true. First of all, I got to ask, you mentioned Tom Higgins. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So, legend has it, that you guys played basketball against each other in high school. And some way, somehow, there wound up being some kind of altercation. As time evolved, I think switchblades were involved and nunchucks and whatever <laughs> else. What actually happened? Well, he accused me of hitting him in the mouth, but I don't recall doing it. You know, We, <laughs> we played them in basketball. I was from... Mitchell County is from Yancey County, and the schools played each other normally in the tournaments. And uh, I remember playing against Tom. He was a heck of a player, but I still don't remember hitting him in the mouth. 
<laughs> he said you hit him in the mouth, and he looked at you and said, "Why the Why in the world did you hit me in the mouth?" And what else says, "Damn anybody beat you by twenty points." <laughs> and so that's another urban legend. That one. <laughs> A journalist stretching the truth. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought it? You grew up in North Carolina. You went to Nashville Auto Diesel College in Tennessee. Then you wound up in Miami. How did racing enter the picture? Well, as some of us guys went to the Hollywood Speedway one Saturday night, and during the race I mentioned to them, I said, well, I could outrun those guys. <laughs> and they said, okay, Sunday. That was on Saturday night and Sunday. We was building a race car. Good great. I didn't win the first couple times out, but I did win eventually. Well, how long did you race, and why did you decide to get out of it? Well, I raced, uh, you know, for a couple of years, and then – Yet I, I finally tore up my race car, and, and I, you know, it took so much money to keep them going, and it was out of my pocket. And working all hours, I'd work on that race car. I just found out to spend it more some, doing something else rather than that. So that's when I quit racing. If I'm correct, you went from there to home in Moody? I went home, ended up getting married to Barbara, my wife. And uh, so worked at the Ford Place in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. Oh, okay. And... Changed hands, different owners. They didn't like me, and I didn't like them. So I left and come to Charlotte to see if I could find employment. You know, but I looked for diesel work for two years, two days. I couldn't find anything. A friend of mine said, well, "Why don't you go see if you can get a job at Home in the Moody?" And I said, "Okay." I said, "I think that's a joke." <laughs> really? So anyway, wow. I walked the door and run into Howard D. Arthur, general manager. And he said, "Can I do anything for you?" I said, "Well, I'm looking for employment." He said, "Well, we're not hiring. We don't need no help." So I'm going out the door, not not dissatisfied, because I figured that'd be the answer. Running into John Holman, he said, can I help you? I said, I'm looking for work. He said, well, step in my office. And he got behind his desk, opened his mail, and I was telling him what I've done in racing. And it, I didn't think he was paying any attention to me. So finally, I said, well, I graduated from Nashville to the disc He said, where's your toolbox? I said, well, I can be here in the morning. What time? He said, 8 o'clock. So and that was I that. didn't have a clue what I was getting into. Now, if you had not run into John Holman on your way out of the office, what would have happened? I would have left and not disappointed because I didn't figure to get a job there anyway. Not with the reputation that Holman Moody had at that time. Right. right. Now, would you have eventually tried to get into the sport again, or were you actually headed towards a shop? No, I never job? had no no thoughts of getting into racing, working on race cars. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't any thoughts of that at all. So it just happened. I mean, like Rick said, if John Holman had not got a hold of you that way, you might be uh, a retired engine builder for Joe Smith's Ford. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) working on diesel engines. (laughs) No, it it was a blessing. I thank God that, uh, you know, he did put us together and... You know, he John Holman, I owe him so much for doing that for me because that was what started my career, period, John Holman. You go from working on diesel engines to racing engines. How did you adapt to that, or was there any adaptation well, necessary? Well, you know, the, the plus I had going my favor is I was a perfectionist, and I wanted everything perfect. And the funny thing about it, when I come in the next morning to work, run into Howard Dehart, and I could tell he didn't like, he didn't particularly like me, so... Anyway, he put me in the engine room. I thought, well, that's kind of odd. He don't know nothing about me at all. So a friend of mine came to the Hall of Fame two or three years ago, 
and said, I want to tell you the rest of the story. He said, when you come to work, he said, they put you in the engine room and was going to get rid of you because they figured you'd mess up in the engine room. He said for two or three months went along. Lee Terry was over the engine room, and he'd check my work every time I'd go to lunch, go to break, whatever. Finally, he said, you know, I think we got somebody kind of special. I believe we better leave him alone. Now, at, when you first began with Holman Moody, you were on, what, Fireballs? Yeah, they well, I was at, very athletic, and so, as soon as I went to work, he put me on his, his pit crew. Hmm. Fireball Roberts pit crew. What right. were you doing? Well, I... Several, you know, depends on what who showed up at the race. <laughs> so you didn't have a specialty; you just did whatever. No, I didn't. But you know, first thing I carried tires, and I uh, ended up being Jack Man and front tire changer, and you know. But uh, you know, I most of the time carried tires, you know, with uh, Fireball because he was wow. the only driver that ever hit me. Hit wow. you. Yeah, I was at Daytona in the July 4th race, and he told me two or three times sitting on pit road, he said, what else? Now, wherever you go with that signboard, I'm going to follow you. So remember that. Okay. He come down pit road, the last pit stop, and he's about pit so away from me, and I'm thinking, there ain't no way he can stop that thing with those drum brakes and come as fast as he is. And I said, I can't run because he's going to follow me. <laughs> so I remember he got close enough to me, I jumped straight up, I landed back on, he run up under me, and I landed on the windshield. <laughs> so wow. I just rolled off the windshield when he had done my job, and he never, ever said a word about it. What kind of person was he? He was a great guy. He, you know, he was one that uh, basically at that time the spokesman for the sport. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. He was a great individual, great to work for. He'd come in in the morning and get up on the workbench and watch us work. would never say nothing, just watch us. Yeah. And... You know, I don't remember how much because I wasn't a crew chief at that time. I just one of the employees. But now I would tell you, I took care of the engine though. And uh, but he was uh, he was an unbelievable racer. You worked for Fireball, I believe, in '63. '63. And then you went to Fred Lorenzen's team. Well, what happened to my dad at the end of the season? You know, Ralph uh, Ralph Moody and Fred Lorenzen come to me and said, "We want you to be Jackman on the." Lorenzo's car. I never jacked the car. I said, okay, so we go have tryouts. <laughs> well, first I said, okay, I'll do it. And then a lot of the guys in the shop found out that there was going to be an opening there on that car, and so they all wanted to try out for it. So we go over there at Lorenzo's shop. And so we do it the first time. I won by a little bit by Ralph Moody's stopwatch. So anyways, two or three of them said I cheated. I don't know how you do cheating on the back <laughs> of a car, but they said I did. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, I had a little feel of it that time, so I made it a lot quicker the next time, and they walked out the door, and that was the end of that. Huh. So I was a jackman on the Renzo's car in 64. And that was at a time when Fred was really coming into his own as a superstar in this sport. Well, you know, I didn't realize at the time, but I think basically Holman, I mean, Ralph Moody and, and Lorenzo was basically want me to build, engine, build right. their engine. Because right. I'd take the engine to the racetrack, and Lorena would come and jump up in my truck and say, which one's your engine? And get the engine. So I think that was more what it was about rather than me being a jack man. Now, were you involved in the 67 Daytona 500 that Mario Andretti won? Was that a Holman Moody car? Yeah, that was a Holman Moody car. And uh, Ralph Moody was with it. You know, he was overseeing that particular car. Now, I built engines for Lorenzo and, and Mario that day. 
And uh, I was on Lorenzo's pit crew, though, so I didn't, you know, yeah, that was yeah. just a hit and miss for Mario right. to come and run that race. And there's a bunch of guys out of the shop that basically never done much pit crew work at all was on Mario's car. And they won. Well, the funny thing about it, you know, uh, Mario told me this, you know, two or three years ago when he inducted him in the Southern Motorsports Hall of Fame or yeah. whatever. And we got to talk for about 30 minutes about that. I didn't know the real story about that. But I remember... I had trouble with, uh, I got Renton's engine off the dyno without a problem. And then Mario's ended up losing the cam bearings. So then I had to take it back apart and redo the engine. And I was late leaving, and I had to drive a tractor trailer down. So I got there the next morning, and I went and told Renton his engine number and told Mario his. And Mario told me, he said, he went to the trailer to get his engine, and boys in there helping him get the engine out. I said, no, nah, you don't want that and get this one over here. He said, nope. <laughs> he said, well, told me to get this engine. That's the one I'm getting. So he got the engine because he'd been complaining that week to John Holman he didn't have the horsepower Lorenzen had. Yeah. So he said, well, I hit the racetrack over first practice session. He said, that thing picked 400 RPMs. He said, I knew it and I had them covered. Wow. 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 But he was a, he was one great guy. I worked with him on his twenty four hour cars at Daytona. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, Dan Ford and I we had his car at Daytona in the twenty four hour race. So he was a great guy to work with too. Now, what did you do after Holman and Moody? Yeah, how long it? were you there? Were you there till Holman and Moody? Well, I was there for ten years. You know, you're talking oh, about go yeah. back to uh, you know one interesting part. You're talking about you know when we in sixty. Four when we unloaded the cars down at Daytona and uh, Lorenzo went out there. We went down there a month. We went down there in January and didn't come back till March. And Lorenzo and several of them went out practice and run about 170 miles there, 168, 70. So Richard Petty unloaded his Plymouth, that Petty Blue Plymouth, sitting over in the corner, never fired it up the first day. The second day they fired that up. I, dang, that thing sounds. That's the keenest engine I ever heard. <laughs> Went on the race track, it's two or three miles faster, and we were just warming up. We went to the motel. So anyway, I told him, I said, well, you know, he's got us covered. We can't outrun that Hemi. I said, let's try a bunch of things. And we worked on different things. I remember changing the cam time, and I'd advance it, retard it, you know, just find out what really worked at Daytona because I'd heard all the old guys, mechanics, talk about this and that, but none of them had ever had a chance to go try all this stuff. So anyway, we went through it and gained it, but then we... You know, Richard ended up winning the race, and Fireball and Lorenzo both ended up blowing up because we put camshafts in them that we knew they wasn't going to make 500 miles, but they'd run a little quicker. So we left, well, we stayed down Daytona, I did, and on Monday, Fireball came out, and in the meantime, we had built a fire lane at the shop. Ford had them built it at Home of the Moody. Sent it down there, and we tested it on Monday. Left there and went to Bristol, tested, went to Atlanta, tested, and Lorenzo won the next seven races. And it was all 250 miles or about longer. What else, What did Holman and Moody mean to this sport? Because there weren't a lot of top flight teams in the sport at that time. You had Penny Enterprises, you had Wood Brothers, I guess Bud Moore. I, I don't know that he was around a no, he lot. Was, he was in. Yeah. yeah, he was there. But what did Holman Moody bring to the table? Well, you know, that was the place for parts, you know, yeah. and wheels. Made all the wheels out of Holman Moody. And I remember when I went to work, there was only 30-some of us, including the secretaries. And, 
you know, the park department, you know, they would, and then another thing, if there was a problem, you know, Bill France Sr. would call John Holman and we'd work on the problem, whatever it was having, you know, and there was a lot of things done out of Holman Moody that no one knew about that for NASCAR to help them, you know, know with the problems they yeah. was having, yeah. reliability on whatever it might be. What are we going to have to do to get them into the NASCAR Hall of Fame? Well, I tell you what, you know, you talk about one person he's in there, and that's John Oman for what he done for racing and yeah. in the in the back start of it, you know, what he done to bring it along. Okay, all right. Now, with Holman for ten years, they eventually dissolved. Were you still there when that happened? Yes, I was. Okay, where did you go then? Well, I stayed there in '71. You know, when Bobby Alves was driving the car, and yeah. You know, he won a lot of races out of that. That's after David Pearson left. And, you know, with David, you know, he won two championships out of home in the meeting. And uh, then they, they quit campaigning the race car because Bobby was gone. Ralph was gone at that time. And Homer come to me and said, you know, just stay with us and we're going to run a race car because he knew I liked working on race cars. So Glenn Wood come to me and wanted to know if I'd build his engines in 72. And uh, so I built his engine, and then start with, A.J. was driving the car. And then he come to me and said, well, A.J.'s going to leave. He's going to have to go run his Indy car. So who am I going to put in that race car? I said, I'll tell you one guy you put in, David Pearson. I said, you put him and Leonard together, and you'll have a winning combination. <laughs> wow. And, and that's what happened. I can't, yeah, I guess so. So I built an engine for him that year, and then wow. in 73 I left. You Okay, so you left in 73. The end of well, beginning of 73. I left in okay. 70, 70. I was there at home with me for 10 years. 10 years. Okay. All right. So what did you do at that point? Well, Ralph opened up a shop, and I went to work with him building in for Benny and, and Bobby Allison. Uh-huh. Okay. Benny Parsons and Bobby yeah. Allison. LG, you know, one of the highlights of my life, I remember being with LG to win Benny Parsons. And so i go work for them. And I remember and ended up in 73 Benny won the championship. So you were with Benny when he won the championship. Right. Not, okay. Okay. I did yeah. not know that. So we won the championship. You know, Benny did in '73, and then '74 was when we downsized engines. You know, first they had a three, three sixty-six, three sixty-four engine, and then they changed it to three fifty-eight. And uh, I remember in '75 we was at Riverside and. Uh, Benny come to me with a set of pistons and said, man, I just got a set of pistons for Daytona engine. So I looked at him. I said, it was a drag race piston. You can't run him in an old track car. Oh, yeah, the guy says you can. Okay. <laughs> so we come back to the shop. Benny and LG went to Bill France Sr. to borrow money to advance, you know, for the season to race on. So wow. I built that one engine, and then I go through. The, I asked, well, we're going to build another new engine for Daytona? No. Can't afford it. I said, well, I went through all that stuff that we'd blowed up in, in uh, 74 and put an engine together. So we show up at Daytona. I know where this is leading. I believe I do, <laughs> anyway, too. <laughs> anyway, Benny said, let's put the new engine in, and we'll run in a couple laps, and we'll take it out and put, the, put that old engine in, we'll, and then we'll save the new engine for the race. All right. Two laps, it blowed up. I said, well, now we got this engine. I wouldn't give you $200 for it. We're going to run and fight this whole time. You know, we have to practice. We have to qualify. We have to run the 125, 150, whichever. And then 500. Well, anyway, 
end up starting thirty second. I wouldn't unload the pit equipment. <laughs> so <laughs> come down next to the end. That thing's still running, and he's running second place. David Pearson leading the race. He ends up spinning out, and then we end up in the lead. We win the race. <laughs> With an engine, you wouldn't give $200. No, I wouldn't have, <laughs> because it was out of scrap parts. So anyway, come in Victor Lane, and I and LG DeWitt was, and Benny both, I've never seen two people. Well, it was just way beyond their wildest imagination, especially yeah, yeah. LG to it. Yeah. But it couldn't have happened to two better people than him. Anyway, I get to thinking, what size is that engine? Because we got to take it apart. <laughs> now, did I, what's crank that I put in? Because that was the difference in the crankshaft, the stroke. First, I don't even want to go check it. They paged me. So Were I you sweating it? Me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, who would have thought we was going to win the Daytona 500 with that engine? <laughs> so anyway, I go in there and take it apart, and it was okay. But thank the Lord for that. <laughs> I did not know all. Oh, of that. Wow, that is that's why we do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up the seventy-five Daytona five hundred, but another event in Benny's career that really kind of lives on in history is the Rockingham race in nineteen seventy-three when he wrecks and yeah. everybody piles in and starts to help put that car back together. Put that into perspective. Just how badly was that car torn up? Well, you know, he ended up wrecking it and he got the door bars. So NASCAR said, you know, that's not, we can't let you on a racetrack like that. We don't have no spare bars, no place. And there was one guy, and I don't, can't recall his name. He had we'd build his engine for him, and his car was down at the other end of the garage. Went down and got that race car, and, we, and he wasn't around. So we bring it up, and we cut the door bars out of it. Well, we get it going back on the racetrack, and, and the bottom line is, you know, Benny ended up winning the championship by us being able to do that. When we run into that poor fella that we'd cut the door bars out, and he was very right. <laughs> he ready to kill somebody. <laughs> so we finally told him, we will put your race car back together and as good as new. So he was okay once he seen, you know, what the end result was, the reason we done it. So, so you basically swiped the roll bars? Uh, we didn't ask permission at all. We just <laughs> cut his race car up. If he'd have seen us cutting it up, he would have took a fit. <laughs> Incredible. But uh, there were several people that jumped in to help make that happen. Oh that yeah. was a big day, yeah. Benny winning the championship. I think the early 80s was some of your most productive time. And uh, like I said, it was with Harry Rainier in nineteen eighty. How did that come about that you joined him as a crew chief? Well, you know, the funny thing about it, uh, whenever I was told LG I was going to leave, it was in the middle of the summer of 76, I think. And he sat down on a box of pistons because, you know, and, and he said, I can't let you leave because, you know, you're the key to the success of this team if you stay in here building engines. So anyway, he sat on that set of pistons, and finally, I said, I gave in to him. But, uh, it, it, you know, it took him a couple hours to finally convince me that I was going to do it, because I was driving 100 miles one way each day to work. Wow. I was living on Lake Norman going to elevate to work, and Roger Penske had already met, I'd met with him at Charlotte Mon Douglas Airport for a job, and I took the job with him to build engine for him. And uh, so I hate to call Roger and tell him that I wasn't able to do that because I, I considered him a nice person. I'd already worked with him one time at Indy on his, when Bobby Allison drove his Indy car, I was a tire changer. So, you know, I 
finally gave in to Roger and called and he was okay with it. But anyway, I stayed till the end to the end of the season. And the funny thing about it, we run Ontario as the last race of the season. We flew into Vegas and that after the race and next morning I'd played blackjack that night. I hadn't lost my money because I was had I laid down twenty dollars something. I said, "When this is gone, I'm going to mo- going to room." Well, I couldn't lose that money, so the next morning somebody patted me on the back and it was LG Dewitt. <laughs> he said, "Let's have breakfast," and I look and I could not believe I'd sit laid there. I'd sit there all night and played po- played blackjack, but I was just so give out unwound. So we went in to have breakfast. He said, "I got it figured out what we're going to do, so you can stay with me." He says. I know you don't like that drive. He says, my pilot, he's an instructor in Rockingham. We'll get you an airplane. You can fly back and forth. I said, LG, I can't fly no plane. He said, well, we'll get your license. I said, no. I said, I'm, I'm going to work for her every year. And you came on board as a crew chief. Now, from what you've told us already, you were more than prepared to be a crew chief. You'd done a lot more than build engines. You just told us. You you carried tires, you did, did the jack, and so much more. So was it a logical progress to be a crew chief? Yeah, I'd been with so many of them and watched how it all went down. It wasn't no mystery to it. Right. You know, it, wasn't no big, it wasn't a big jump from being an engine builder and then take home a job. I know when... Uh, but start with though, you know, when we opened that up and Lenny Pond was driving the car right. with Harry Vernier and Herb Nab and then, you know, then they got Buddy Baker and, and uh you know, I could see things was going south that wasn't working, so Harry come in and let Herb go. And then that's whenever he come down there and I had no clue where I was gonna end up being a crew chief. And he come to me and he said, Young man, he said, You're gonna have it all. You're gonna be the general manager, crew chief, engine builder and all. Period. Sure. Happens. Have it. Wow. Well, you know, there was a period, I believe in 1978, where there was a lot of rumor about Lenny Pond being let go, Daryl Waltrip coming in. I know that Herb Nab and Lenny Pond didn't exactly get along. What was it like for you to be in the middle of all that? Well, you know, you get into situations like that, it's no fun time. And thank goodness, you know, Harry's seen it. And, you know, I wouldn't want to try to get the people fired or thrown out or anything like that. That wasn't my role. But so many other crew members were complaining. And, you know, and finally Harry settled the situation. He got straightened out. What was it like for Lenny to win that race at Talladega with everything going on? You know, that's pretty remarkable. You know, I know we had the fast race car, and then, then he ended up winning, and I was so happy. You know, Lenny was a great guy, a great guy yeah. to work with, yeah. too. You know, he's good. And, you know, I could, you know, I didn't want to see him leave to start with. Yeah. You know, I didn't I didn't see nothing bad about him. But uh, then Herb wanted Buddy Baker, so that's where it ended up. At Darlington Raceway, tradition comes alive. Here's Bill Elliott out of turn number four. Harold Kinder has the checkered flag in hand, and Elliott takes it and wins the Winston Million and the Southern 500. 70 years of racing at the track too tough to tame. David Pearson wins the 1977 Southern 500. 
Come celebrate the 90s with us at Darlington Raceway on Labor Day weekend. And Earnhardt will win his second Southern 500. His sixth victory at the Darlington Raceway in South Carolina, Jeff Gordon will win. Mark Martin makes it four wins in a row. To purchase tickets, call 866-459-RACE. Alan Kowicki races off turn number three and back to start finish to take the checkered flag. Or visit DarlingtonRaceway.com. The measure of a career winning a Southern 500. Yeah, baby. Bring the family and relive the history. Richmond gets the checker and Tim Richmond wins the Southern 500. South Carolina, just right. So, Steve, tell us about this chance meeting that Waddell Wilson had that really changed the course of his life. Well, it was with John Holman, who was half of the John Holman and Ralph Moody, Holman Moody team, hugely popular and very successful at the time. And the idea behind it all was that he didn't know if John was interested at all in him coming on board. And John told him, why not? And, you know, the thing that struck me was just how random it really seemed to be because he had already gone in and talked to somebody there, and they said that Holman and Moody, yeah, Yeah. nothing's available. And on the way out of the building, he meets John Holman. That's right. And John says, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, invites him in. And the next thing Waddell Wilson knows, he's on Fireball Roberts' pit crew. Right. So it was, I don't know, man, that's one of those what ifs. You have to wonder about that. I like to think that Waddell might have found a job in racing anyway because he had had a taste of it, as he told us, and he knew that what he could do in racing was not necessarily drive but be productive on a team. So I have to think that somewhere along the line, Waddell, if he'd put out the feelers, probably would have found his way into racing. But hooking up with Holman and Moody, goodness, how much that helped his career and how much it helped Holman Moody. The thing that I love about this story is just how close it resembles my own career. Because, Steve, I was sitting in the Bristol Press Box in August of 1992. I was doing some stringer work for the paper in Columbia, Tennessee, Sterling Marlin's hometown. Wasn't getting paid anything for it. I was just getting a credential into the race. And I wound up striking up a conversation with the guy sitting next to me, whose name was Jerry Langford, and he was the sports editor at the Journal Patriot in North Wilkesboro. And it was pretty evident that (laughs) Jerry didn't really want to be there. It was one of those assignments that he had to do. It wasn't that he was disrespectful or he hated being there. He just wasn't a NASCAR guy. And so we just struck up a conversation, and I moved to North Carolina a month or so after that. And in the press box at North Wilkesboro, Jerry Lankford told me about a newspaper in the mountains of North Carolina that needed a sports editor. And that's how I wound up at the Allegheny News. And that's how I wound up at Winston Cup scene. If I had not met Jerry Lankford in the Bristol press box that night, I have no idea how much my life would have been different. Well, I know exactly how you feel because years ago, I had graduated from college and did not have a job. And I had to find something for at least six months before I had to report to Paris Island. (laughs) So I was going to Martinsville and I was on my way to talk with someone about taking a position there at a furniture factory. And I just happened to drive by the Martinsville Bulletin. So I stopped my car, turned around, 
went into the Martinsville Bulletin, first person I run into is the managing editor. I said, sir, I was the sports editor of my college paper for a year. Do you need a sports writer? And he says, as a matter of fact, yes, we do. Why don't you come on back here? Are you kidding? That's how I got wow. started. I took a current events test and a spelling test, and I started work for the Martinsville Bulletin the next day at $105 a week. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I never knew that story. That's pretty cool. Well, of course, being in Martinsville, you know I had to cover a race at Martinsville oh, Speedway. Yeah. yeah. I did not know a thing. Did not know a thing, but I learned so much so quickly from Clay Earls and Dick Thompson, his PR man. Now, Steve, as I mentioned, sitting across from Waddell and hearing him talk about Fireball Roberts and Fred Lorenzen and working with them during the heyday of their careers, that was pretty interesting because today we don't have those personal connections anymore with drivers like Fireball and Fred. No, a lot of that is missing, and uh, I think Waddell realizes that that's missing today as well. But the good thing for him was at home and Moody and working on pit crews and helping and build engines, Waddell was getting a wealth of experience that would benefit him as a crew chief. Also, he was getting experience in doing pit stops back before the pit road speeds and all that went into existence. And crew members were actually out on pit road holding the signboards. Right. Those guys were straight up crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and on this pit stop at Daytona, he winds up being a hood ornament and bouncing off the windshield. Right. Gosh. And then going to work on the car. He's <laughs> continued the pit stop. I know how dangerous that can be. Years ago, Tom Higgins and I did a story about being crewmen. And to do that, we were on the pit crew of a guy named Lanny Hester. Not only was Lanny a part owner of Bristol okay. at yeah. the time, yeah. but he also drove what was then known as the Baby Grand Circuit. Okay, Those were yeah. the Pintos and the gremlins and all that sort of thing and the subcompact cars and he assigned me to hold the pit board for him Ooh. Uh, that tom hadn't do anything but wipe off the windows <laughs> 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 so they told me he was coming into the pits and i had to stand there and hold that sign up to make sure that he saw where his pits were so i held that sign up and don't you know he never slowed down fortunately he did not drive into his pit area but he flew past me and I could, I could feel the wind as his car zipped wow. past me, and I thought yeah. to myself, thank you, Lord. I thought there for a minute I might be coming to see you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the 1973 season finale at Rockingham, that is a race that kind of lives in NASCAR legend. Benny Parsons is going for the championship, and at the time, Rockingham was the season finale. Right. He gets into an accident, and the entire right side of his car is basically just sheared off. Stripped away. In this accident. And so Waddell is working for LG DeWitt and Benny Parsons at that time. Steve, they went out into the garage and they found a car that hadn't made the field for that race. I don't know how else you put it. They stole it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and they cut it to pieces for the roll bar. Right. Waddell didn't remember the driver's name. And in Greg Fielden's just awesome set of books, 40 years of stock car racing, the driver's name wasn't mentioned. Right. So I sent Keith Parsons a message on Facebook and asked him, and he said that the roll bar came off the car of a guy by the name of Bobby Musgrove. Right. 
I don't know where Bobby was. <laughs> <laughs> or if he knew what was going on. I don't know where Bobby was when this grand larceny was taking place. <laughs> but evidently, according to Waddell, when he came back and found his car cut to pieces, he wasn't exactly too happy about it. <laughs> I wouldn't be either. <laughs> Another thing to remember this, not only did they rob a car, but other crewmen from other teams came swarming in to help Benny get back in that race. And Steve, what does it say? about that era when you had members of other teams against which Benny was competing. Right. Coming and helping him out to win the championship. I think that's a cool part of this story that doesn't get told enough. Well, in essence, back then it was, we're all in this together. And today it's every man for himself. Now, without the help of those guys and robbing the car, Benny would not have won the championship. No. As it turned out, he won it by 67.15 points over Cale Yarbrough, who was in his first year with Junior Johnson. 67.15. What's that a was, point one five? That was man? the system back then. <laughs> Don't ask me. I couldn't figure it out then. I can't figure it out now. But the point is, uh, that's how Benny won the championship. And he had only one victory that year where Cale had four. But the difference was Benny had 21 finishes among the top 10 in 28 races. The system was designed to reward consistency. I guess that's where all the point this and point that come in. And this time, it did its job. And Steve, 1975, Daytona 500. Waddell talked about that engine like it was basically just thrown together at the last minute. He actually said he wouldn't have given $200 for it. <laughs> Their primary engine blew early in practice. I think he said three or four laps in. And they bring this other thing out, and they have to practice on it. They have to qualify on it. They had to run the qualifying race with it. And then they had to run the 500 with it. Waddell said we started 32nd, and I didn't even feel confident enough to unload the pick equipment. <laughs> <laughs> so what does Benny do? Well, guess what? <laughs> he goes out, and he wins the race. Yeah, he did. And I'm pretty sure that Waddell had some serious concerns about how Benny was going to perform on that day. But one thing to remember. This is a race where Benny credited Richard Petty with letting him draft off of him throughout most of the race. Richard had no chance to win. He knew it. And Benny said he was driving behind Richard, and Richard took his arm up and went, come on, come on, meaning stick with me. And by utilizing the draft with Richard Petty, that tremendously helped Benny win that race. As Richard Petty would say, the circumstances, <laughs> <laughs> they just worked out for Benny Parsons right. to win that race. And to me, that says anybody on any given day, given the right circumstances, can go to victory lane. In next week's segment with Waddell, he talks about the 1980 yeah. Daytona 500. Absolutely. That was the race where race fans got to know who Waddell Wilson was. And he also talks about 1991 Sears Point. Oh, yes, he, yeah. we. <laughs> That's still great sign. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, it's still great on me too. <laughs> A 
follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out the inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And Steve, this morning, he updated his Twitter feed and said that he had finally had a chance after his move to upload a few more items that he's got. There's no telling. <laughs> oh, man. He has several new items to share with his followers, with his customers. So be sure and check that out because he is doing a really good job of preserving NASCAR history and making it available. So again, follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, in continuing to look through these issues that have the race leads that are going to be featured in the commemorative issue of Grand National Scene at Darlington, I am continually amazed at how packed they are. September 5th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup Scene, Harry Gantz on the cover. He has won a $100,000 bonus from R.J. Reynolds in the Winston Million program. Right. He had won at Talladega earlier in the year. And what obviously you guys didn't know at the time was the fact that he was going to go on and he was going to win not only Darlington, but he was also going to win the next three Winston Cup races. Four in a row. Four in a row. Also won, I think, what? Two Bush Series races. Two Bush Series races, I think, at Richmond and, what, Dover? That was a magical stretch for him. Harry was already the oldest winner in NASCAR history to that point, but he added to his record by 118 days. (laughs) And at the time that he won this race, he was 51 years and 234 days old. (laughs) He's supposed to be retired for crying out loud. Come on now. He was a young buck. (laughs) He was beating the young buck. Okay, Steve, let's just put this into perspective. As of this recording, as we sit here right now, I just so happen to be 51 years, 331 days oh. old. Well, you know, Harry Gant to this day still looks 51 years yes, old. Yes, he does. You, however. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I walked right into that chopper blade. <laughs> there were only three cars on the lead lap at the end of the race. There was Harry Gant, there was runner-up Ernie Irvin, and third place Ken Schrader. Yeah, three cars, lead lap, not going to say any more. And the old man leads the way. In this race, Steve, Davey Allison was also going for a $100,000 bonus after winning at Charlotte, the World 600 at the time. He started from the pole, and if he had won, he would have collected a $114,000 bonus from Unical. So he was up for 100000 from Winston and hundred and fourteen grand from Unical because they had the pole program where if you won the race from the pole, you won, yeah. what was it, $7,600? $76,000, I believe. It was. Well, $7,600, and it rolled over. Yeah. If the driver didn't win at that race, it would roll over to the next right. race and the next race. Got up to $114,000 by the time Davey was running yeah. at Darlington. However. And Davey <laughs> did everything he could do. He won the pole, and he was leading on lap 291, and he started to not be able to mash the throttle all the way down for some reason. So in turn, he would stomp on it. Yeah. And that would get it maybe sticking open a little bit. And in one of those exchanges, he got into Michael Waltrip. Michael Waltrip spun. Davey pitted. (laughs) Wound up getting a 15-second penalty for having too many people over the wall. And the problem, Steve. (laughs) This is hard to believe. (laughs) 
The problem turned out to be some pop rivets from the cow that had gotten into the throttle linkage. How much does a pop rivet cost? I'm not sure, but I think both of us could afford one. (laughs) I believe between the both of us, we could buy a few, but maybe a couple of cents. Yeah. And it wound up costing him $214,000 in bonus money. And on top of that, whatever the winner's purse was that day. So you're looking at probably $300,000 that went out the window for a A two cent piece. A pop rivet. Can you believe it? And as always, this issue has interesting side notes. Kyle Petty, in this race, made his first start after breaking his left leg on May 6th at Talladega. Right. And Steve, he was running in the top five with 10 laps to go when the engine let go in his Sabco race in Pontiac. Yeah. Uh, Kenny Wallace, a young Kenny Wallace, served as his relief driver for a period of time. And then Kyle got back into the car, did extremely well. Uh, at Darlington, but, you know, wasn't to be. And then, Steve, Harold Kinder, the longtime flag man and such a, just an awesome personality. Right. Uh, in the sport at that time, he was the chief flag man. He died on September the 2nd. That was a huge loss for this sport. Absolutely. He was, as you mentioned, a great personality. He just got along with everybody. Everybody respected him, and he did his job so well. He took it very, very seriously. Only the win. Has waved more (laughs) More flags flags than than Harold Kinder. Kinder. Yes. Him being the NASCAR official closest to the crowd, he would come down out of the flag stand and he would sign autographs. Right. And after a race, I believe that he would give his bubble goggles away to some kid and all that kind of thing. So for the sport to lose him, that was a big loss. Then I believe Dale Ford immediately took over. Yes, he did. Okay. Yeah. Dale Ford took over. In this issue, also, there's coverage of David Pearson being inducted into the National Motorsports Press Association Hall of Fame. Honestly, I would have thought he would have already been in <laughs> by 1991, but I guess there's a statute of limitations where you got to wait a certain amount of time. Supposedly it's five years. <laughs> now, in David's case, at least until 1986, he kept taking spot rides here and there. Yeah. And that sort of delayed his entry into the Hall of Fame, but... Uh, by gosh, he got there in 91, and deservedly so. And that was a cool hometown story, because with him being from Spartanburg and, of course, Darlington, both in South Carolina, right? that was the hometown boy making good. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, just how prophetic it was that he's inducted into the Hall of Fame while the Darlington race coverage is in the same issue. You can't take Pearson away from Darlington. No, and you can't take Darlington away from David Pearson either. Right. And as I mentioned in the intro, in this issue, there's a story on Bunky Knudsen, who was NASCAR's national commissioner. He'd been involved in the auto industry in Detroit yeah. for years and years I and years. I think it was White Motors. That, remember yeah. those white trucks? Yeah. There? Yeah, I think he was involved in that. His name was S-E-M-O-N. Seaman? Seaman? I don't know. E. Knudsen. Bunky yeah. was his nickname. Bunky. Now, how did he get that? I have no idea. (laughs) Nobody in the press except, I think, Scene, when they wrote this feature, even knew who he was. I mean, he never showed up at the tracks, as far as we know. He was NASCAR's national commissioner. The buck stops with him. Now, Steve, according to Godwin Kelly's feature on Bunky, he was 78 years old at the time. Right. And he was a resident of Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Maybe that explains why he didn't get to a lot of races being from up there. 
Bunky had been in the news earlier in the season. Tommy Ellis was relief driving for Jeff Bodine, who had also been injured at Talladega. He was driving the Junior Johnson and Associates Ford in the All-Star race during qualifying and practice for the All-Star race at the Winston at Charlotte. And he was found with an oversized engine. Oh, an oversized engine. And the engine in that car, the limit was 358 cubic inches, and it exceeded that by 3.856, so nearly four cubic inches. (laughs) This was a whopper, (laughs) as Bobby Uh, Allison would say. Junior always said, if I'm going to cheat, I'm going to cheat (laughs) better. As it turned out, NASCAR suspended Junior Johnson and Tim Brewer for 12 races which Bunky later reduced on appeal to four weeks. So, Well, you know, had that penalty stuck, the 12 weeks, that would have been as long a suspension as NASCAR had ever made. D.J. Ulrich, the driver, just a few years before, had gotten a 12-week suspension for using a nitrous oxide bottle in his car. Yeah. So this would have matched it. But Bunky Knudsen, I like that name too, (laughs) reduced it to four weeks. As we know, the yeah. car was renumbered from 11 to number 97, and Flossie Johnson, right. Junior Johnson's wife at the time, was listed as the car owner. Right. So and what do you remember about that time? What was the feeling in the garage about that transgression? Well, you know, it was it was a transgression. I mean, there was no doubt in the garage area about it, uh, but some people asked, this is a special race. This is not a points-paying race. Can't the guys fool around with the cars a little bit? And uh, the answer was no. I mean, now we did hear the argument in the garage area that the Winston was not a points-paying race. It was a race where everybody wanted to go all out to win a lot of money. So why not let them fool around with the cars a little bit? But reason prevailed. NASCAR couldn't let that happen. If nothing else, it might be dangerous. So... The cup rules applied all the way through. Well, being a relief driver, Tommy Ellis evidently didn't get the memo from Junior to blow the engine up as he crossed Cross, under the jet. Yeah, <laughs> that happened once before, as I recall. Wait, did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, of course, the reference there is the inaugural the Winston All-Star Race, and Daryl Waltrip won that. And magically, suddenly, somehow, someway, miraculously, as he crossed under the checkered flag. The engine failed. That engine, no, it didn't fail. It hand grenaded. (laughs) (laughs) Which conveniently means that what's the purpose of doing an inspection? Yeah, so I don't know what happened there. Who knows? I don't know. Better not say anything else. Don't want to get sued for libel, whatever. (laughs) But, Steve, we mentioned also this in the intro to the show. Deb Williams had just an awesome scene on the circuit news item to read her account of Felix Sabatis' helicopter crash. I mean, you've seen the story. Yeah. And to imagine going through that, Felix Sabatis and his pilot, Sean Taylor, escaped injury when their helicopter crashed on the Grandfather Mountain Country Club golf course in northwest North Carolina on August the 30th. And I'm telling you, man, a turbine blade came out the back of the engine. It caught on fire and basically exploded at approximately 5,000 feet in altitude. Now, that has to be the end of that. I mean, can you imagine a, 
A helicopter blowing up at 5,000 feet and anybody surviving? Felix said in Deb's story, he cut a real deep left bank. The ball of fire came out over my shoulder. He aimed it straight down to the ground, and luckily for us, the 16th fairway slopes down, and that's what saved our butts. When we hit, we bounced and slid about 100 and some feet down this bank. It came to a stop next to a creek, and it was on fire. Can Just you read that, that gives the me The contour chills. of the land yeah. allows them, basically, to escape alive. Felix got out, started running, but realized that Sean Taylor wasn't with him. He turned back. Had to. Turned back, and, you know, Sean was still in the aircraft. He Felix was kind of in a daze. Felix said he was trying to recollect his thoughts, and he was still kind of numb. I opened the door and told him it was on fire. He jumped out. And we ran. If there's anything humorous at all about this event, Felix said on this golf course, <laughs> there was a couple playing golf when we crashed, and they didn't even slow down. They hit a ball right over our heads. I couldn't believe it. They didn't say a word. They just kept on going. <laughs> Nobody said four. <laughs> so evidently, that tea time was sacred. <laughs> The conclusion to this story is that Sean Taylor, the pilot, asked Felix for a couple of days off <laughs> after <laughs> At that. At least. And Felix said, you know what? Take as much time as you want, buddy. <laughs> no you're, kidding. You're my new hero. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Dalen Hart Jr., and you're listening to the Scene Ball Podcast. Steve, patreon.com slash the same vault podcast, paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. Help us out over there. Follow us on Twitter at the same vault. Follow us on Facebook at the same vault. And again, thank you to Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media. Thank you to Jim Beaver and the Down and Dirty Radio Network that we're now a part of. Thank you to Joey Step, my best friend from high school for the musical score. Thank you to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Brian Kelb, I appreciate you. And again, Darlington, the clock is ticking until we're able to hold that commemorative issue in our hands. Absolutely. And I'm going to be very, very happy when we do that. And I'll be happier when the fans can do that. Yes, sir.